everybody. Welcome back to the Insightful Thinkers Podcast. Part two of Black Panther Party. We talked about the origins and uh, the philosophy of the party last week. We're going to finish off talking about the party. We're going to get into their rise, what they, uh, their tactics they use, their strategy, um, how they eventually divided up and, and started to decline. What was their legacy? Um, sources of this article were Abrin. Uh, 1986, The Legacy of the Black Panther Party, as well as Delhi Carpini, 2000, Black Panther Party. Those are the primary sources used in the creation of these two episodes. So what were the strategies and the tactics that the Black Panthers used? How did they put their philosophy to use? We, we talked last episode about how they weren't all talk. They weren't all... Uh, it wasn't all for show. They really put uh, put their philosophy to work. So um, their most radical activity really was the implementation of Malcolm X's notion of self-defense. So they really used a lot of public displays of force and militancy. The Black Panthers formed these police patrols of armed cars first in Oakland and then in other cities around the country that watched over black communities. These patrols acted as a form of neighborhood watch with visibly armed black Panthers protecting citizens from potential abuses by the police. So when the police stopped black people in Oakland and in other areas, the black Panther patrols would would intercede or at least keep watch of the police and what was happening in the arrest and assure that constitutional rights were not violated. Since the carrying of firearms um, openly was legal in California, the police were not able to prohibit these activities. So the Black Panthers were able to roam the streets of Oakland (laughs) with their, their huge rifles and the police couldn't do anything. And then if they were standing there peacefully watching arrests take place and monitoring it, there was nothing the police could do. Now, despite this, these patrols of the Black Panthers often did result in numerous confrontations that sometimes were violent, resulting in the death of as many as 28 members of the party, actually. So mostly this was for good, but it did result in these violent confrontations sometimes. Some other militancy that the Black Panthers used, uh, you look at in 1967 when an armed group of Black Panthers lobbied the state legislature in Sacramento against pending legislation that would have limited their ability to carry arms. So they went right to the state legislature with their uh, with their weapons and to to. Uh, in a sense, uh, lobby the state, the state legislature, so that they these uh, privileges of carrying arms wouldn't be revoked. Um, they did, though, go far beyond these militant activities. The pictures you see, the Black Panthers, you may see them while they were performing these militant activities with their rifles and so on. But um, and and these militant activities, they did play an important role in the growth and the prominence of the party, and certainly the media coverage and. It was a radical group, so having big rifles is going to be more interesting than a group with just their fists, but their activities really went far beyond these things, and they had a really strong commitment to community service. They instituted what was called these survival programs, um, which were all provided for free, Uh, and these programs were things that really benefited, uh, benefited the populations, so... 
These programs included breakfast programs for underprivileged school children, medical clinics, clothing programs, a sickle cell anemia research foundations, uh, housing cooperatives, pest control programs, plumbing and maintenance programs, food programs, child development centers, escort services for the elderly, legal aid programs, free shoes to the poor, transportation assistance, and ambulance services. So they really, the Black Panthers instituted all of these free programs and helped millions of people, really. And Arguably, in response to the Panthers' free breakfast program, the federal federal government even introduced a similar program and then made it permanent in 75. So we'll talk soon about how the government was kind of against the Panthers. And, and the Panthers actually influenced the federal government to adopt uh, the free breakfast program as well because the Panthers were doing it and that almost put pressure on the government in a way to institute these as well. If the Panthers can do it as a as an independent organization, why can't the federal government also provide free breakfast to, uh, to underprivileged, underprivileged school children? So the Panthers actually influenced this policy um, indirectly in a sense, um, and then their influence uh, changed federal policy in this way. The Black Panthers also organized a lot of anti-war rallies. So they encouraged black people and other minorities to resist the military draft and to resist fighting in the Vietnam War. They also forged alliances with other leftist and black organizations. So still talking about the, uh, the strategies and the tactics and the programs that they used. So at various points, the Black Panthers worked with predominantly white leftist organizations such as the Peace and Freedom Party, the White Panther Party, and the Patriot Party. So they aligned with uh, a lot of predominantly white groups, and they also built ties with uh, leftist ethnic organizations such as the Brown Berets, who uh, were Mexican or uh, individuals of Mexican descent, the Young Lords, individuals of Puerto Rican descent, and the Red Guard, the Chinese individuals of Chinese descent. So... They really aligned with a lot of these other leftist organizations and were not um, pariah, a pariah in any sense uh, or, or an outcast of, of, of radical people who wouldn't align with anyone and wouldn't cooperate with anybody. They aligned with these other organizations. And despite their often critical rhetoric and occasional confrontations with other black organizations, the Black Panthers had reasonably good working relationships with black organizations such as the SNCC, the League of Revolutionary Workers, and the Republic of New Africa. Even the mainstream NAACP and the SCLC lent a degree of financial, moral, and material support to the Panthers. So this was one of the strategies they used to um, strength in numbers, align with other leftist organizations. So this really, this aligning with other leftist organizations really spoke to the party's belief in the interconnection of the black liberation movement with broader liberation movements. It's a, it's not just about black liberation, it's also about liberation of uh, a lot of the underprivileged groups. The Black Panthers were also one of the first supporters of the gay rights movement, placing this issue on their national agenda in 1970. Um, now, let's talk about their organizational structure, their leadership, and their membership. We talked about their strategy. We talked about their platforms. Let's talk about how it was organized. So, 
From its roots as a local or Oakland organization, the Black Panthers rapidly grew into a national and then even international party. Though the exact size of the party is difficult to determine, the best estimates are that at its peak in 1969, the Black Panthers had as many as 5,000 members and between 34 and 40 local chapters in the United States. These numbers, though, underestimate the larger influence of the party uh, because Panther-inspired rallies drew crowds estimated as large as 10,000 people. And a 1970 national poll found that 25% of African uh, Americans felt the Black Panther Party represented their views. So clearly they had some form of an influence on the broader population aside from the 5,000 members they had uh, at their peak in, in 69. So. Also, in addition, the, the party had a presence in Cuba, in Algeria, in Europe, and regular working relationships with the governments and organizations all over the world. So their influence really extended across the world. And uh, the national poll that revealed that a quarter of African Americans said the Panthers' beliefs represent my beliefs, too. So it really had its large influence. We'll talk about this in when we finish the episode with their legacy and... Uh, what influence the, the Panthers left. Now, one thing that we have to address, the Black Panthers, um, by no means were they a, a perfect organization and a, uh, yeah, you could hardly even say they were ideal in accomplishing their goals. And uh, they did a lot of things, but they weren't, a, they were by no means a perfect party. So there was a complex role of women in the Black Panther Party. And we have to address this uh, to tell the story, the full story of the Black Panthers. So leadership positions in the Black Panthers were dominated by men and numerous examples of sexist patriarchal attitudes could be found in the party's organizational structure and rhetoric, especially in the early days of the organization. Most notable of this, uh, uh, patriarchal sexist attitude and rhetoric was was the gender-based distinction between panthers and pantherettes. Most, more generally, women's opinions and issues were often discounted and women were often treated as sexual objects within the organization. So in the early days, the panthers did have a bit of a sexist approach to their... <clears throat> to their organizational structure and leadership. Now, what is ironic, though, is at the same time, the Panthers were incredibly committed, actually, to gender equality. And they saw women's liberation as part of the broader effort to achieve self-determinacy of all people. The Panther-Pantherette distinction was dropped in 1968, and party leaders uh, later apologized for earlier sexist remarks and made strong statements in favor of equal rights within the party. Several women also rose to important leadership positions and became visible spokespeople for the party. So in their early days, they did have this patriarchal kind of sexist attitude and structure, but this kind of was dropped over time as they aligned a little more with the philosophy they had all along of equal rights for all and for women as well. Now, when did the Panthers start to <clears throat> decline? Why aren't the Black Panthers around today? Well, there was, there was kind of a, a dual, there was a dual role on one side of the FBI infiltrating them and on one side the they, them breaking themselves down and dividing themselves and being their own worst enemy uh, and, and differences of philosophies. Now, 
we'll talk soon about how some people think the only reason the Black Panthers got torn down was because of the FBI and the FBI infiltrated them and uh, ruined the movement. And, And that is true to an extent, but they also kind of led to their own demise too. So we'll talk about both of these things. So, but what's the role of the FBI? The FBI did play a major role. And you could even argue that if the FBI didn't get involved, they might not have uh, split fully either because the FBI really rattled them and uh, put them on edge to even split them up in the first place. So from its inception, local and federal efforts were made to infiltrate and destroy the party. From 67 to 71, under the FBI's counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, the federal government waged war against the Black Panthers and other progressive or radical groups and individuals. These efforts were designed to promote violence between the Panthers and other black organizations, to encourage dissension within the party, to undermine public support for the party and its leaders, and to provoke local police attacks. So the FBI had these aggressive tactics that were at least partially responsible for the increase in arrests of members of the party and in the violent confrontations they had with the police. The FBI director himself, J. Edgar Hoover, described the Black Panther Party as the organization posing the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. So the FBI was really trying to break this party down. Its tactics included surveillance, harassment, and targeting. So for example, they would issue tickets or trivial or completely fabricated traffic violations, or they would arrest party members on uh, equally trivial or fabricated charges. They would also spread misinformation campaigns and party and would infiltrate the party. So, um, if you, if you, we talked about Judas and the Black Messiah in the past episode, and uh, you see the misinformation campaigns. They would put a uh, a flyer on the wall or all over the city of a fake quote from the Panthers, and this would lead to division. This would lead to other black organizations getting confused. Why did you guys say this? And then Fred Hampton, the the leader of the Chicago chapter, would have to. Uh, back up his, his party and say, we didn't write this. That was the FBI. They're, they're spreading misinformation about us. So this is how they tried to break down the Panthers. Um, these tactics that the FBI used did succeed in forcing the party to devote many of its resources to legal defense funds and paying tickets, fines, and bail bond premiums. So it, it forced them also to divert their funds to sources that they they wouldn't have had to if it weren't for the FBI trying to break them down. The FBI's campaign reached reached its apotheosis in December of 16 in December of 69, excuse me, with a 5-hour police shootout at the Black Panther Party's SoCal headquarters uh, and in the Illinois State Police raid when Chicago Black Panther Fred Hampton was killed. So in 69, it reached its pinnacle, it reached its apotheosis when uh, they really infiltrated them and and they they murdered Fred Hampton. They infiltrated the SoCal headquarters. They completely uh, tried to break them down at this point. When the FBI killed Fred Hampton, um, this was, this was a bit of a conspiracy on not, until not, well, I shouldn't say not too long ago, but before the word came out of what happened in this murder, people thought, oh, the Panthers shot 
they were shooting at the FBI and it was in self-defense, as you see many today, as uh, many uh, police forces use as a as a cover to say, oh, it was self-defense or, or people use that. George Zimmerman used that when he killed Trayvon Martin. This is what the FBI originally said. Um, about 100 bullets were fired on this day and in what the police described as a fierce gun battle with members of the Black Panther Party. But ballistics experts later determined that only one out of the hundred bullets came from the Panthers' side. So this was just complete murder. The FBI just came, stormed right in, murdered Fred Hampton. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The measures employed by the FBI to take down the Black Panther Party were so extreme that years later, when they were finally revealed, the director of the agency publicly apologized for wrongful uses of power. So... This is when the uh, tactics of the FBI reached extremes in 1969. Um, so these are the things that the FBI did, and you see how it shook them up. But that wasn't the sole force in breaking them down. We touched on the fact that there was dissolution from the party from within, and that was between... Huey Newton and Eldridge Cleaver. Newton, of course, we talked about in the last episode, was one of the co-founders of the Black Panther Party, and Cleaver was a leader of the Panthers near the end of the 1960s. So rifts that already existed within the party became exacerbated while under attack from the FBI. At the center of these internal disagreements were Newton and Cleaver. Newton felt that the party should put greater emphasis on its domestic community service programs within Oakland and things like this, and, and even within the United States more broadly, whereas Cleaver believed that the party should advocate violent revolution and increase its ties with international revolutionary movements. So Cleaver had his eyes on these these global issues, but Newton said, let's concentrate on the United States and even just in Oakland and things like this. And this type of disagreement on their philosophy split the party into two confrontational camps that grew increasingly more confrontational uh, under pressure from the FBI and, and also over time. So with Cleaver in exile in Algeria to escape conviction, Newton now had greater control over the organization in 1968. So in 1968... Newton succeeded in, in, in shifting the party his way uh, and putting the emphasis away from the militant rhetoric and actions advocated by Cleaver and back to community organizing and self-help. Those community programs that we talked about, uh, the free programs, the free breakfast, the hospital service, the busing and the, the elderly escort service and all these things. It, it, Newton uh, got the party back to doing these things. But this led Cleaver and a number of national, local, and grassroots members to object. They wanted to use militant activities. They wanted to be more on the side of uh, the police patrols with our guns and our rifles and, 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 and showing our strength in this way. <clears throat> so um, while Newton remained in control of the national organization, a number of state and local chapters aligned themselves with Cleaver during this split. So this is where the split is starting in 68. In, in February of 71, a local San Francisco television broadcast, which it was intended to be an opportunity for Newton and Cleaver to talk on the phone to discuss their differences, ended up erupting into an argument that ended with 
them expelling each other from the party. So they, the leadership right at the top was completely starting to, to shatter. In 1972, a year later, the National Party, under Newton's leadership still, made a major strategic mistake. They ran Bobby Seale for mayor of Oakland and many other Black Panthers for city council. Newton convinced the party leadership to issue a directive to close all the state and local chapters to concentrate all its resources and personnel toward winning these elections. Remember we said it had up from about 34 to 40 chapters uh, and, and, and Newton said, let's close all these, devote all our resources, let's, let's, uh, and, and put it all in, into these political elections for, for Newton and other members of the party for city council. So this was perhaps motivated by many of the state chapters turning on him and aligning with Cleaver. So he was already kind of losing his control over these state chapters anyway, because a lot of them were aligning with Cleaver with these more militant ideas and global ideas. So he just said, okay, let's shut all that down. Let's bring it back to Oakland and let's run for actual office. <clears throat> so many unhappy with Newton's strategy of, of running these, of see, running SEAL and running other party members for office resigned from the party right then and there in 72. Bobby SEAL and Panther member Elaine Brown, who was, who was running, were unsuccessful in winning their respective elections anyway, after all these resources were devoted. Now with all these resources in Oakland, many of them already wasted in these failed electoral runs, the party was confined to being a local Oakland organization from that point forward. So this just completely shrunk the party under Newton's strategic mistake here. So they diverged from their initial strategy of not attempting to gain power. Initially, we said last episode how the Black Panthers weren't really interested in gaining political uh, power but once they started to go for power, it, it corrupted them and it failed. And and in reality, their power, it really was already there without needing any of the Panthers to actually be in office. So this is kind of the way power corrupts. And when Newton wanted to gain actual uh, political power, what he thought was actual political power, it failed and it actually broke down the party and they withered into just being an Oakland organization. The party continued its downward spiral with Newton becoming increasingly authoritarian and erratic in his approach. He took personal control at this point of all the party's financial resources and decided alone how the money would be spent. Under his control, the party became involved even in criminal activities now in Oakland. The party's security cadre, created in 72 to protect the Black Panthers' candidates for office, was used to force Oakland's criminal groups to pay the party for the right to continue their criminal activities. So they now, they, they basically shifted what they used to have, they used to have these nice police patrols that would make sure these arrests were being conducted properly on black people. Now their patrols were, were going to these crime organizations and saying, uh, you guys have to pay us if you want to be able to continue your criminal activities. We know what you guys are doing, so pay us or else we'll, we'll rat on you and we'll report you to the police. So they were getting involved in... <clears throat> His bribery, these criminal activities under Newton's leadership. Two years later, in July 1974, Bobby Seale, remember Newton's initial, 
initial partner and co-founder, resigned from the party, followed soon after by the resignation of many other prominent leaders. So even Bobby Seale himself didn't even align with what the party had become, one of the founders. Uh, so Newton uh, really started to break this party down <laughs> single-handedly. He took control of everything and it, it just started breaking down. So, and prompted in part by his abuse of alcohol and drugs, Newton became prone to violent outbursts, including the alleged murder of a prostitute. To avoid prosecution on this and other charges, he then fled to Cuba in August of 1974. So right after, they started engaging in all these criminal activities. He was on drugs and it was really breaking down. Three years later, Newton came back to the United States. Uh, the murder charges were dismissed after a couple mistrials and Newton again took over the party. Under his leadership, the party quickly declined again into violence, criminal activities and financial mismanagement. Um, with the closing of the Oakland Community School due to lack of funds in 1982, the Black Panther Party came to an official end. All good things come to an end. So um, it was bound to happen. It is unfortunate how it uh, it became more of a, a malicious thing near the end, whereas it started with these community service programs and it descended into a little bit of violence under Newton's leadership. But that uh, and that does taint its legacy, um, but but its legacy still really does remain within the the predominantly white establishment. The Panthers are often dismissed as an anti-white collection of criminals who were motivated by uh, nothing more than a combination of self-interest and extreme left-wing politics, and they the establishment kind of thinks that their influence was merely the result of the extensive media coverage they received, and they didn't really do much. Among many black people, the party is taken more seriously, that's for sure, but the extent to which the party's demise was orchestrated by the government uh, is often overstated. So you'll hear black people, uh, many black people have the impression that the Panthers were destroyed. Oh, the FBI infiltrated them and it totally broke them down. That's not fully the case. They We talked about how they broke themselves down in certain ways. The downfall of the Black Panthers, it wasn't all due to the FBI. Um, though the FBI was responsible for weakening the party, we talked about how they had to divert their funds to uh, other sources and to pay for these legal fees because the FBI really did shake them up. So it's a bit of both. Um, many of the free breakfast and lunch programs for school children are still in existence to this day. And these are greatly inspired by the Black Panther Party's breakfast programs. Remember, the the federal government, arguably in response to the, the Panthers' idea of these free breakfast programs, kept these permanent in 75. And that still exists to this day. Um, Voting and voter registration, the, the Panthers had an influence on that. They increased vote, voter registration and electoral involvement from blacks nationwide. This was inspired by Bobby Seale's 73 bid for mayor of Oakland that we discussed. Although Seale lost the race, he did win 43% of the total vote after having forced the Republican incumbent into a runoff. So even though... <clears throat> When Newton diverted all the funds to Oakland to run Seal and Brown and other Panthers for for office and, and, and failed in a certain way because now their funds were stripped and it, it became a local Oakland organization, this did kind of uh, 
increase voter registration and, and make more black people aware of of the vote and things like that. So even though Sia lost the race, surprisingly to many, he won 43% of the vote and there had to be a runoff to determine if Sia won or not. So that, even through failure, these these shakeups do do change things and, and, and uh, change people's ideas of voting and, and things like this. The party also led several voter registration drives between 1972 and 77, even while they were under extreme turmoil. These drives were key in the elections of Alameda County's first black supervisor, John George, in 1976, and Oakland's first black mayor, Lionel Wilson, in 1977. Um, the Black Panther superhero. No, <laughs> that, that was not an influence of the party. Um, the Black Panther superhero was actually created before the Black Panther party. Stan Lee says it was actually nothing but a strange coincidence that one of the biggest black superheroes has the same name as the Black Panther party. So there's really actually no relationship there. I thought so before researching into this, but uh, apparently not. Um, but it is kind of interesting how there is that aspect of, of, of black power and self-determination when you watch the Black Panther movie, kind of like the Black Panther Party had. It could be the case that even though the Black Panther superhero was created before, after the Black Panther Party, they might have taken some, at least some ideas from that and, and inputted it back into the ideas of the Black Panther superhero too. Now, perhaps the greatest legacy of the Black Panther Party is as a cultural icon, really, and a symbol of black liberation and black power. You see them with their fists up. The party's slogan, power to the people, it still resonates with many progressive movements. Uh, power to the people, these, these <laughs> more uh, the left approach and things like this. Um, the Black Panther's ideology also permeates many hip-hop lyrics, including many direct references to the party and its leaders. If you are uh, a connoisseur of hip-hop, you've heard probably, especially 90s hip-hop, you've probably heard hundreds, maybe not hundreds, but you've heard uh, tens of, of Black Panther Party references. I can assure you that, talking about Hampton, Seal, Newton, the Panthers, Power to the People. All these things come from the Black Panther Party. Now, opinions about the Black Panther Party, they remain wide-ranging. However, there is little doubt that the party played a major role in influencing the post-civil rights black liberation struggle and the overall progressive movement in the United States and around the world. You can't take that away from them. The party, despite its its demise, um, really made a lot of changes, and that's why I wanted to discuss it today. It warranted an in-depth analysis into what they were all about, and uh, yeah, hopefully it, uh, it helped me understand a lot more than I did about the party. I, I, I just saw the pictures of them with the guns. I heard references to them, and uh, especially in hip-hop and and. But I didn't know what, what they were all about and, and all the things they actually did for the community. So they did a lot, and that can't be taken away from them. Thank you guys for listening to this episode and, and also episode uh, last week, part one. We're growing our community through word of mouth. So if you like this episode, all you got to do is tell one or two people about it. You can also do all the digital things that you guys know so well. Rate, review, like, comment, subscribe, follow. All these things do help with the discovery algorithms. But whatever you guys do to support, 
listening and watching is always plenty. Uh, thank you guys so much for tuning into the Insightful Thinkers podcast. We will be back next Monday, as always, for more in-depth analysis into a diverse set of topics. Take care, everybody. This podcast is a production of Insightful Thinkers Media.